Arches is dark. How dark? Nobody knows. At least 20 magnitudes per square arc second on the Bortel meter scale. <laughs> this is the Exploring the National Parks podcast with Dirt in My Shoes. My name is Ash, and I'm a former park ranger and the founder of Dirt in My Shoes. I think that the parks are best seen from the trail, and I'm here to make national park trip planning easy. And I'm John. I carry the kids on the trails, I tell stories, and notice all the things that Ash doesn't care about much, like flowers. Join us as we show you around America's spectacular national parks. We're sharing our favorite places, fun facts, adventures, and misadventures. And we'll even throw in a little trip planning. Let's start exploring. Today, something brand new in my life happened. I found that there is a new way to choose a restaurant. And that is... Based on whether or not it will make you smell like the food that you are eating. <laughs> I'm so picky about this. Poor John. We're trying to figure out where to go to lunch. And I'm like, yeah, but I just don't want to smell like food today. <laughs> I actually did my hair. Oh, so. God. It was so funny. I've never been in a place in my mind where I'm like, okay, what place doesn't smell like itself? And I... Had to go through a drive through because we couldn't figure it out. <laughs> I just, it's been an ongoing problem. My hair picks up all the smells and my clothes, like I have a really strong nose. Mm -hmm. I can smell lots of things that John <laughs> never can smell. <laughs> and so it's like, we'll go out to dinner or something and I'll give him a hug and I'll be like, oh, no, nope, you got to go change. I can smell the food on you. <laughs> so as long as we've been married, this is the first time I've ever had to use this category to choose the restaurant that we go to. There's always, well, let's go get this kind of food or let's go get this kind of food. This was a brand new criteria and I thought it was <laughs> worth mentioning. <laughs> If any of you have recommendations of restaurants that don't make you smell like the food when you leave it, I would appreciate it. It's a big deal to me. Uh, I feel uh, like we're going to end up going to like a hospital cafeteria. That's no, you can get smells there too. Uh, you can. Death? It, the smell of death? No, no, just sickness <laughs> and chemicals. This one smells like the Spanish flu. <laughs> no, but speaking of food smells... We're headed to Arches National Park in this episode, and Arches, well, the town of Moab has some of my favorite restaurants Yes, outside of it. So many good food. You will smell like the food yes. if you eat at our favorite restaurants, but we talked about those in the Exploring Arches episode a couple weeks ago, and today is all about the fun facts. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm really excited about, so. And we're just going to jump right in. Like, the first thing is just going to be like, boom. This is why Arches is so cool. Fun fact number one is that Arches National Park has the densest concentration of natural stone arches in the world. There are over 2,000 documented arches in the park. Which is so crazy because this park is really small. Yeah. It's not a huge area. No, it's not. And it's really surprising. Like, this place is just nuts. You can go... Even just into Canyonlands, you can go across the highway to Canyonlands, or you can go other places in Utah, other Red Rock National Parks, and it's a very different experience. Well, there's not 2,000 arches, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, that is the truth. Oh my gosh. But no, it's just crazy. The densest place in the world for arches. It's just really cool. And it's right here, and it's a really small area. There is a rule, though. It's not just like it can be a couple of inches in a hole. That's what in the I rock. thought. <laughs> I thought when they said because we go to arches all the time, and so I thought when they said two thousand arches, I was like, yeah, they must be really <laughs> small arches because I feel like we've been a lot of places in that park and haven't seen even close to that number of arches. Right. So in order to be considered an actual arch. It must have a span and a light opening of at least three feet. Which is way bigger than I thought. Yeah, exactly. Three feet. I mean, I don't know if they're just trying to go based on the metric system or something like that, too, for a meter or something like that. But three feet is a pretty good sized hole in the rock. 
but also ha- it can't just be a hole in the rock either. It has to have a place where light can go through it. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was a really interesting way to categorize or, or to document what is an actual arch. So they have rules for it. You can't just see a hole in the rock. There's rules for it. And there's 2,000 of these things. Yeah. And we talked about this in the other episode. You can go to the visitor center and they have a book of all their cataloged arches. So you can actually see all 2,000 right. in their book. I don't know how else you would be able to see all of them. And I don't know where they all are. Like, <laughs> that really does bother me. <laughs> where in the world is that park hiding? I know. It's really so interesting. We'll actually talk a little bit about these 2,000 arches when we get to fun fact number five and we do the human history of it a little bit. It's really incredible. And if you can go and see that folder with all the different arches, just flip through it for a few minutes and you'll be like, wow, there's so many cool arches. I love it. But Ash, why here? Why is this place so special? Why does this place have so many arches compared to any other place around the world? There's red rock everywhere. Why is this place special? I have no idea. I really (laughs) don't. Like I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of the surrounding area because... Even in the town of Moab, there's quite a few arches that you can hike to and and Mm -hmm. see. And Canyonlands has some as well. Right. But even still, it's not nearly at the level of Arches National Park. So Mm -hmm. in my mind, I'm trying to think what's different. But all I can think is, nope, I've got nothing. (laughs) Okay, well, in order to get into that, I'm actually going to introduce something into today's episode that's brand new. And it's actually, we were scrolling through TV the other day and we saw the old game show, Let's Make a Deal. Mm-hmm. Remember that with Wayne yeah. Brady? Mm-hmm. And in that show, contestants have to choose between what's behind curtain A or what's behind curtain B kind of a situation. I figured we could incorporate that into this episode a little bit. And, but instead of having cars or money or zonks behind the curtains, Ash, you get to choose which joke or reference I use to decide how we describe why these are all here. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> okay, so you can either choose Monty Python and the Holy Grail or Star Wars. Star Wars Every single time. (laughs) I do not like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Oh, that's too bad. (laughs) Okay. Well, for all you Monty Python fans out there, just so you know, I was thinking about you. We'll go with Star Wars for this one. Okay. In the show The Mandalorian, they spend a fair amount of time on a planet that kind of reminds us of Tatooine a little bit. It's called Arvala 7. And... Like I said, it looks a lot like Tatooine, a big desert planet. It even has Jawas. But anyways, Mando or or Din Djarin, he meets this guy named Queel. And he's awesome. He ends every conversation that he has with, I have spoken. And it's Nick Nolte's really cool, like crackly voice. And so Mm -hmm. he says it in a really fun way. It's like whenever my kids complain about doing their chores, that's just the voice that I should use. I have spoken. Just doesn't have the same weight. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> exactly. But anyways, in the show, in that first season of The Mandalorian, they're on this planet and they have to travel a pretty far distance, but they don't have any like vehicles to do it. And so in order to travel really far, pretty quickly, they have to ride these creatures that look like giant desert piranhas with short little legs and a long tail, but a huge mouth. And anyways... The creatures are called Blurgs. Okay. And they are the key to this whole adventure that Mando has. Well, my new favorite word and the key to the creation of the densest concentration of natural stone arches in the world is an erg. Okay. For reals or as a joke? No. (laughs) For reals. For real. The key to... Making all these sandstone arches is an erg, which reminded, that's why I thought of Mando. That's why you thought of Blurg? Blurg. What in the (laughs) world? It's actually called an erg? It's actually called an erg. Okay. And so on Arvala 7, they have to ride these Blurgs across the desert, and the desert does somewhat resemble Arches National Park. 
but an erg, an actual erg, this is a real term. It's not just something I made up. It totally sounds made up. So one thing that we've learned from doing all these fun facts episodes is that landscapes change over time. A place that it is a desert today was a rainforest 100 million years ago or, or at the bottom of a shallow sea. Well, what is interesting about arches is that when we look back into its geological history and try to pinpoint the time that is now directly causal to what we see and, and the uniqueness of arches, at that time that we can pinpoint this cause, arches was also a desert, but not all deserts are the same. Deserts come in all different shapes and sizes. You know, they have different features. Arches is a desert. Big Bend is a desert. Joshua Tree, Death Valley. They're all deserts, but they're all different kinds of deserts. And yet, none of those deserts are mentioned as ergs. An erg is a type of desert. And what you think of, when you think of an erg, think of the movie Dune. Or think of the Dune Sea from Tatooine or from Star Wars. It's a vast landscape, miles and miles, almost unending in distance of just sand and, and sand dunes as far as the eye can see. That's what Arches was? That's what it was. It was okay. an erg, a sand dune desert. <laughs> Who that named was that? I am sorry, but... <laughs> My new favorite word. I mean, don't you think... I mean, when I think of like the Sahara Desert, that's what I think of. Right? It's an it's erg. Just the Sahara Desert is yep. an erg. It's an erg. Nobody says that. Okay. <laughs> but that's kind of what it looked like. In Three beautiful area. letters. E-R-G. All right. Erg. And yes, but yes, it's that in a modern context on today's planet, we would think of it as the Sahara Desert. Okay. Just giant sand desert. Sand as far as you can see. So you think of the Sahara Desert, but also think of Jurassic Park. Because when we went back in time to pinpoint that exact moment that causes all of these arches, we found that most of these arches are carved out of Jurassic Age sandstone. So during the Jurassic period, and, and I mean, we've been around Moab, there's lots of cool things that have to do with fossils and Jurassic this and Jurassic Triassic Cretaceous, everything like that. That is one of my favorite things about Moab. Yeah. So if you're into fossils, holy cow, there are so many cool things you can see. Oh, yeah. Side note. <laughs> Back to Erg. So we talked a little bit about this during the Zion Fun Facts episode, but this area was covered in a giant Erg, an incredibly massive dune sea. And for millions and millions of years, layers and layers of sand dunes kept building up and higher and higher, layer upon layer upon layer, crushing the bottom layers and petrifying them into sandstone. And so if you look at a lot of the rock and a lot of the stuff as you travel around Arches National Park, you'll see all kinds of evidence of these petrified dunes. And you'll see like cross bedding. You'll actually see some petrified dunes that look like rounded hills as you drive. Now, a lot of things happened here in Arches that we don't really need to get into. But what you need to know is that not all sandstone is created equal. Sandstone is grains of sand cemented together by minerals. Now, the ingredients for sandstone can vary wildly and produce very different results, but there are several main layers at arches. Some are great for fossils, but some are great for arches. And I'm going to explain two layers. Two, we're going to focus on two layers that really explain why these arches are here and not other places. So there's a couple layers that you need to know about the Entrada sandstone, and the Carmel formation. Okay. The Entrada sandstone was an erg, this massive sand desert with lots of sand dunes. Now, not too long ago, we put some gravel in our yard, and we went out and we kind of looked for some different kinds of gravel and things like that. One of the prettiest kinds of rock that we found was like river rock. Right, mm -hmm. Ash? Yeah, it, I love River Rock, but it was too expensive. <laughs> so we didn't choose that one. We did not choose that <laughs> one since it was just going to be an RV pad. But what makes River Rock ash? Why is it pretty? Why is it special? What makes it the way it is? Erosion. The water carving out all the sharp edges of the rocks and making them smooth. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Cobblestone kind of goes through the same thing, mm -hmm. right? And so you have these rocks that water is constantly rushing up against it, but then the rocks are 
smashing into each other and chipping off all of the edges and things until eventually you have a really round, smooth stone. Mm -hmm. Sand goes through the same process. It's just much smaller. And so in these ergs or in these sand dune deserts, the sand is going through the same thing. But the wind is causing all of this sand to blow all different places. But on a micro scale, you're seeing if you zoom in onto this little grains of sand, you're seeing these grains of sand are going through the same process. Their sharp edges are getting chipped away at until eventually, in this case, the Entrada sandstone, almost all of the grains of sand are completely round. And so if you think about this, you've got all of these layers of sand dunes on top of this Entrada sandstone. You're pushing all of these completely round sand grains together and cementing them together. But if anybody that's ever poured a bowl of cocoa puffs or anybody that's ever like been completely buried in like one of those ball pits at the McDonald's play place. That's terrifying, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so many things can go wrong. Yeah. If you're underneath There's the nothing balls. like drowning in a whole bunch of balls. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you do get under the ball pit, if no kids jump on you, and if you don't get a disease, then you'll notice you can be completely submerged and still breathe because the balls are completely round, but there's only a few contact points between the balls around them, and there's lots of gaps around each ball. Right. Same thing with the bowl of cocoa puffs. There's plenty of room for milk in your bowl of cocoa puffs. Well, this Entrada sandstone all of these grains are pushed together, but there's plenty of gaps to allow water mm -hmm. to come through. Okay, so that's the Entrada sandstone. Now, caramel formation is directly beneath the Entrada sandstone here at Arches. And the ingredients are very different. You still have sand grains from these different sand dunes and things like that, but it's also infused with tons and tons of clay minerals. And the clay minerals are way smaller than the sand grains. And so they fill in all those gaps. And so what you end up with is a rock that is a lot harder and denser and way less porous. Mm -hmm. You have a really loosey-goosey layer of sandstone, and then you have a really hard layer of sandstone right underneath it. And so that's kind of the perfect situation for what we find in arches. And so why is now this important? It, now, is it like that in other areas around arches? Like, does it have the two layers or I'm just thinking Canyonlands looks a lot different than Arches, a lot more erosion and uplift and stuff like that, I'm assuming. Right. So maybe their layers are a little more messed up, which is why you don't get as many Arches. There are a lot of other layers, like there's a Navajo sandstone in Canyonlands. There's also a Navajo sandstone here in Arches. But I think the it's not just that these layers are the perfect ingredients for it. The entire landscape here has a lot of other ingredients that are perfect for arch making. Okay. And so these two specific layers are just like the most ideal situation possible. You'll find them in other places, but maybe they're not quite as exposed as they are here in arches. Okay. Why this is important is because despite the fact that this is a desert, once you have these two kinds of layers here, and you push up the landscape a few thousand feet and add just the right amount of water, which is eight to 10 inches of water a year, this becomes the perfect recipe for creating natural stone arches en masse. And so that's what we have here at Arches. It's exactly what happened over millions of years. And lots of erosion, all of the sand dunes were washed away, rain came, tons of erosion. Suddenly this Entrada sandstone is exposed with the Carmel right underneath it. Rain falls down, the rain gets absorbed into the Entrada sandstone, and it kind of goes, it just like seeks right through it. But then it gets stuck on top of the caramel formation and creates these pools of water. And anybody that's ever been to Arches knows that it's hot in the summer, but it's freezing cold in the wintertime. And so you have these pools of water just on top of the caramel or caramel formation at the bottom of the Entrada sandstone. And what happens when water freezes, Ash? It expands and it breaks off the rocks that are 
right there. And they make an arch. <laughs> and it makes an arch. Yeah. And it's so cool. And so this sandstone is literally, it's absorbing what is breaking it down. And yeah. it absorbs just enough. And then it comes and it sits on this pool on top of the Carmel formation. And then you break it down in just the right places that it creates these arches. It creates weak spots in the rock. Right. As it expands, it's breaking pieces apart and it's breaking it apart. And it just keeps doing that. And it starts with making fins. Yep. Right. Uh-huh. And so these fins are like just giant slabs of rock. Right. That just have been broken into smaller slabs of rock. And then that's when we're able to get arches as the arches comes out of the fins after that erosion has taken place. Mm-hmm. Then the water keeps doing its thing and it keeps expanding and breaking off pieces until eventually there's just a hole there. Right. Exactly. But even the conditions, you could have these two layers of sandstone here, but if you add the wrong amount of water, then the whole recipe is screwed up. If you don't have the right amount of freezing temperatures, the whole process gets screwed up. And so Moab and specifically arches is the perfect situation in so many different ways. The ingredients and the recipe is perfect because if you add too much water, then you get canyons instead Mm -hmm. of arches. There's not enough time. Too much erosion. Is too much erosion for arches to form. If you don't have enough water, then you just get a flat landscape and it doesn't erode enough. It's almost a miracle that this place is so perfectly Swiss cheesed in sandstone because there's lots of other places with red rock. This Entrada sandstone layer extends way beyond just arches. The Navajo sandstone layer that we have here also extends way beyond arches. You'll find it in Zion. You'll find it in many other places. But the situation here for you to find this many arches located this densely is everything has to work out perfectly. It reminds me of one of my favorite scenes from the Avengers movie, Avengers Infinity War. Iron Man, Spider-Man, and Doctor Strange are all out in space. They're waiting to kind of ambush Thanos and they meet the Guardians of the Galaxy and they're kind of trying to figure out how to make a plan and how they're going to ambush him. When all of a sudden they look over and they see Doctor Strange kind of meditating, he's all green and everything and his face is just going crazy fast. And one of the Guardians of the Galaxy is like, is he supposed to be doing that? And so Iron Man walks over there and he's like, Strange, what are you doing? And then he kind of collapses and he's like, oh, I just went forward in time to see all the different options for how this could play out. And they ask him, how many did you see? And he's like, 14,605. And then Iron Man is like, how many do we win? And then he whispers back, one. That's Arches National Park. (laughs) There's red rock, sandstone all over the Southwest. It's everywhere. But this is the place. This is the one place where everything had to work out, where it started millions of years ago in the Jurassic period. And finally, the conditions, the stars are just right. Everything just had to line up perfectly this one time. And then humans had to be here to see it. We are here for it, man. And let me, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen, I give you arches. National Park, the one timeline, the one place where everything finally matched up and worked out perfectly for us to see sandstone turn into Swiss cheese. I've never thought of it that way. And we've been to Arches, I don't know how many times, sometimes like twice in a year. We're just like, let's just go because we're from Utah and it's not too far. Like it is so cool to see them so unique oh they're even there and they're huge too like some of these arches are just massive oh yeah the amount of as you say the perfect recipe that had to go into creating a hundred foot tall arch yeah exactly insane actually so in other places it just collapses because erosion either goes too fast or there's earthquakes which Mm -hmm. break all the arches that's another ingredient you have to have. It has to be in a place where there's not enough earthquakes. Where they can still stand. Right. So cool. Yeah. I love that. I want to go back now. Actually, I'm giving myself a task. I want to make a list of the 2,000 arches. <laughs> and I want to see how many I can get to. 
That sounds awesome. Yeah. I would love that. Because I'm pretty sure I've only seen maybe 50. Don't you think? I think so. How many have we seen? If you just stick to the main stuff. 50 to 100 is probably what you see. I have 1,900 more arches to see in that park. Oh, we should do awesome? it. Yeah. I might have to get a job as a park ranger there to be able to get to some of them. Just have like perpetual backcountry <laughs> permits. Yeah, they they don't <laughs> let you just wander around to all of them, I'm sure. So We could just tell them that we're doing, this is a follow-up study on the 2000 arches. <laughs> we're just making sure they're all still there. It's just a bucket list. It's my bucket list. I'm going to do it. It's a miracle that this place is here. We're going to kind of stick with that theme a little bit as we go through the next few fun facts. Because not only is this landscape a miracle that these arches are all here and that they're formed and we're here to see them, but there's the whole landscape. It's just a collision of miracles. And it's really cool. And we'll only focus on two because then if you do too many, the miracles just lose their miracleness a little (laughs) bit. All right. As you explore arches, you'll notice that this place isn't just a barren erg. There is life here. There are plants here. And so... What are some of the main plants that you'll probably see? There's grasses. Yes. There are some cottonwood trees. Yep. In some of the wetter areas the of the washes. park. Last time we were there, we saw some really pretty yellow flowers that yes. were big. There are hundreds of wildflower species here. Yeah. That surprises me because we've seen some really cool flowers and arches over the years. But the yellow ones we saw last time were gorgeous. Yeah. Some of the seeds for wildflowers that are here, they can lay dormant for forever until Mm -hmm. they get just the right amount of rain and then all of a sudden they'll germinate and then there'll be a whole new bloom of flowers here. Interesting. It's really cool that they can do that. When you go to arches, it looks pretty bare. I'm just trying to think of what I've seen. Desert sage? Desert, yes. There's sagebrush here. The point that I'm trying to make is... It's a trick question (laughs) is what it is. He's trying to trick me. I'm not. I promise. But the point that I'm trying to make is just because it's a desert doesn't mean that it's dead. And as you drive around, you'll see all kinds of things. You will see cottonwood trees. You'll see pinyon pines. You'll see junipers. You'll see all kinds of bushes and shrubs like Mormon tea, black brush, salt brush, sagebrush, lots of different grasses and wildflowers, cactuses. There's lots of life here at Mm -hmm. Arches National Park. But what is really interesting is that all of these different categories of plants that I just mentioned, and you're just like, oh, there are things that live here, only make up 20 to 30% of the living ground cover here. Yes. Well, I didn't know if we were going to count the ground cover. That well, that's I was fun fact number of. two. Yeah. So I didn't want to jump the gun. Don't jump the gun because okay. here it comes. Fun fact number two is that 70 to 80% of all living ground cover here grows as part of the cryptobiotic crust. Do you know how much I love cryptobiotic crust? <laughs> I do. I, I know love, you love it, it so. so much. I love it so much. Can you be obsessed with cryptobiotic crust? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And I guarantee the rangers in Arches are also obsessed with the cryptobiotic <laughs> crust. <laughs> they are. Now, if you've never heard of it before, you have no idea what we're talking about, it sounds a little bit like what Ash cuts off of her peanut butter sandwich, you know, and she won't eat. But Richie, <laughs> eat your crust. If you've ever, crust. if you ever listened to the, or watched Bill Nye as a kid, there's this funny scene where there's this kid that eats Wonder Bread, but he never eats the crust. Richie, eat your crust. <laughs> Cryptobiotic crust, if you break down the words, it actually gives you its meaning really well. Crypto means hidden and biotic means life. So quite literally, it's hidden life. So as you drive through arches and hike on the trails, and as you look out and you see all the grasses and bushes and cactuses and everything, if you don't know where to look, you're missing 70 to 80% of the life that lives here. So where do you look for this? Crust is referring to the soil, hidden life soil. And even though it may just look like dirt, the soil here is full of living things like lichens and mosses, algae, fungi, and bacteria. And if you just look at your feet, you'll see a whole new world down there that you didn't know existed. But before we go any further, you have to repeat the cryptobiotic code. And it's not eat your crust, Richie. It's don't bust the crust. 
Don't bust the crust. <laughs> stay, yes. on, stay on the trail. Stay exactly. on the trail. Exactly. Because don't bust the crust. It basically means don't step on the cryptobiotic soil because this whole little world down there is so fragile. One step off the trail can destroy a whole world of life that takes hundreds of years to grow back. And this crust is so important to the landscape here because it literally is the glue that holds life together. It keeps the sand from blowing and eroding away. It absorbs and holds onto moisture so that all the other plants like the bushes and trees and cacti can survive. It hardens the soil just enough so that when the rains come, the entire landscape doesn't just wash away. It literally and figuratively is the glue that holds life here together as we know it. And what's cool about it is you can actually, in some areas, especially areas that have not been touched, you can actually see how it's grown. Yes. It looks, I wouldn't say alive, but like you can see like inches of inches on top of each other of this black crust that grows in crazy ways and stuff that's Uh just on top of the soil and whenever (laughs) we're such nerds (laughs) (laughs) we're like if you've ever watched the office there's this super funny scene where dwight is like really frustrated because he's wasting time he's like i could have grown mushrooms that are this tall right now he's like mushrooms grow really slow (laughs) (laughs) could be one inch tall by now but whenever we're out hiking in the southwest or especially around the moab area it's just like if we see a good patch of cryptobiotic crust We are there, like on the slick rock. You don't touch the crust, you guys. (laughs) Yes. But we'll get as close as we can on the slick rock. And we'll be down there with our cameras, (laughs) trying (laughs) to get pictures of, oh my gosh, look at this crust. Oh, we're the paparazzi for cryptobiotic crust. (laughs) And people walk past us like, what in the world? (laughs) This is a good one, you guys. (laughs) Look at this three-inch mound of cryptobiotic crust. this one is. Three inches is big, okay? So, <laughs> Oh my gosh. Anyway, we're the weirdos out there that are just like, look at this crust. But it's like I said before, it's not a single organism either. It's a community of life with lichen and mosses and algae and all these things. There's three members of the cryptobiotic clan that I want to talk about real quick. And only, there's only two of them that we'll really talk about. But the mosses and algae and cyanobacteria. The first two... You would never associate with a desert landscape, mosses and algae, right? You would never associate that with the desert. Well, you don't think there's enough water. Right, exactly. But the special thing about the moss specifically is that moss can thrive here because it can tolerate complete dehydration. They can be completely dried out for years, but when rain finally does come, they green up almost immediately. This specific mosses, they don't have roots on a whole like transportation system inside their bodies where they can move nutrients and water from different parts of the plant. The mosses, they actually have to absorb the water directly into the cell via osmosis from like the rain drops or the puddle that they're in. But what's so cool is you could have some moss that's been dried out for years. All of a sudden it rains a little bit and within an hour it could be doing photosynthesis cool, and alive and growing within an hour of being boisened up. The other one that I think is neat, which I think is a little bit more of the hero of the cryptobiotic crust, is the cyanobacteria. It's the Spider-Man of the cryptobiotic crust. And this is why I call it the Spider-Man, is because it's one of the oldest and most important forms of life on Earth. Scientists believe that thick mats in ancient earth, this is billions of years ago, thick mats of cyanobacteria are what changed earth's atmosphere from carbon dioxide rich to oxygen rich. Mm -hmm. So if you've ever been to Yellowstone and you've been to some of these hot pools and you see these mats of bacteria, that's kind of what we're talking about here. That kind of bacteria is within this cryptobiotic crust here. And it changed earth literally but kind of like the moss once it's totally dried out it can be dormant for a very long time but once you moisten it just a little bit it comes back alive and it starts to move through the soil 
And as it moves through the soil, it starts to leave sticky fibers behind, kind of like Spider-Man traveling through New York City. He's leaving his webs behind and these webs that are holding everything in this soil together. And given enough time, this crust will build up and up and up. And like we talked about, it's only <laughs> it's only a couple of inches. But to them, it's like they're building New York City to us, inches to them, huge skyscrapers, Times Square, Lincoln Center, Freedom Tower, the cyanobacteria swinging around all over the place, leaving their webs across the Spider-Verse. You have all these different Spider-Men just within this cryptobiotic crust, tying everything together with their little sticky fibers and it just keeps growing if we don't touch it yeah don't touch it and don't bust the crust don't bust the crust and so next time you're there crouch down a little bit and pay attention to these little black mounds that you'll see all over the place and the good ones you'll recognize right away oh yeah those are the ones with all the different kinds of spider-mans and spider gwen and, and all the different ones nice oh my gosh i love the crust yes. i love it so much a whole hidden world thriving right at our feet miracle number two whole community almost 80 percent of the living stuff inside the soil that really does blow me away though that percentage because yeah. there i mean there are plants <laughs> <laughs> and things you can see but yeah, it really is the crust that you just, you wouldn't even notice it unless you noticed it. <laughs> no, it would just look like dirt. Yeah. Oh, look at that muddy puddle. It's just, you have to know what you're looking for. But once you do, it's a miracle. And you'll see it everywhere. You it's will. Really cool. Okay, so let's move on to the next miracle. Now, this one is probably one of the greatest examples of life will find a way from Jurassic Park that I've ever seen. It's absolutely incredible. We're going to be talking about amphibians, which is another thing that you wouldn't think you'd be talking about in the desert. I don't think I've ever seen an amphibian in Arches <laughs> National Park. <laughs> <laughs> they're really small. <laughs> Once again, these to, to us, they're really small, just like the cryptobiotic crust. Okay, so we're going to talk about amphibians, but we're specifically going to be talking about their metamorphosis. And to make sure we're all on the same page... Amphibians, like frogs and toads, they lay their eggs when they reproduce. The metamorphosis that they go through is from egg to tadpole to young frog to adult. When they're fully frog or fully toad, they basically hatch from the egg as a little fish, and then the front part of their body gets bigger and fatter, develops legs, their tail shrinks, until eventually they're unrecognizable as adults. They don't look anything like they did when they were little. As a control subject, we're going to talk about something that everybody knows, the bullfrog. The bullfrog is everywhere. Now, when the bullfrog goes through this metamorphosis, it takes a while. It actually kind of depends on where the bullfrog lives, depending on if it's warmer or colder, wherever it's at, depending on its range, it can go quicker or slower. The fastest they can change into adults from tadpoles is about 79 days. And that's kind of in the warmer area where they live. In the northern and more cold areas, it can take as long as two to three years for them to go through this entire metamorphosis. So this process can take quite a long time, which just makes this fun fact even more miraculous. Fun fact number three is that Arches National Park is home to the world's fastest metamorphosizing amphibian. The great No, no, <laughs> no, I have to stop you right there. Nope. The Great Basin Spadefoot Toad. The Great Basin Spadefoot Toad transforms into adulthood from tadpole in as little as 14 days. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. I've never seen one of these. You have. You no, have seen have them. I? Yes. We In have... arches? Maybe it's not exactly the same one. <laughs> I want to see the one. I want to see the one that metamorphosizes in 14 days versus 80 or 600. Okay. I want to see the one that's 14 days. We all do. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's incredible. 
Okay, so let's talk about this. Let's figure this out. How life found the way. So amphibians need water, right? Mm -hmm. But as we discussed, Arches only gets between 8 to 10 inches every year. And that includes winter snow, which isn't going to help us at all here with these guys because they actually need liquid water. They don't need frozen water. What the spadefoot toads have to do and what they've mastered is waiting and being patient. They wait, just lots of waiting, until at just the right moment, they recognize a storm as one of the summer storms comes through. And it can't just be any storm. It has to be a storm that drops the right amount of water, just like everything we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. Everything has to be in the perfect amount and the ingredients have to be perfect. Boom, you get a summer storm that drops a good amount of water. And this water fills up some of these dry washes. The potholes. It fills up the, the potholes. There's springs. Mm -hmm. There's intermittent springs that pop up that are dry most of the time. And anywhere that this water gathers, they have to quickly lay their eggs. This has to be perfectly timed. And this is why. Because the clock is ticking as soon as they lay those eggs. And this is why the clock is ticking. Because it's still summer in the desert. Right. It's like <laughs> 110 degrees. Easily. Oh my gosh, easily. So you get a one-off storm that drops a whole bunch of water, okay? And then the next day, it's 110 degrees. And for the next 14 days. And so what you have to realize is these tadpoles, these little eggs, they have to go through that whole process. Otherwise, they die. Right. Because the water will dry up and they will dry up if they can't turn into adulthood in time. 14 days doesn't seem, that seems too long. It does though, right? That's why they have to find, they have to find the right pothole. They have to find the right intermittent spring or place where the water gathers. It can't just be, oh, it rained. There's some I'm, water. Yep. I'm going to drop my eggs right here. Because if they don't find the right spot, then all of their kids go the way as most of them in Finding Nemo at the very beginning of the movie. Oh. Yeah. They just don't make it. And so that's why I think you, we have seen these before. Remember when we went to Horseshoe Canyon in Canyonlands? Yeah. We saw a whole bunch of tadpoles in like there was a stream that had a little bit of water going through Horseshoe Canyon. But it wasn't even a connected stream all the way. It wasn't flowing water. It, it's true. Our kids loved looking for those tadpoles. Yeah. It was and throwing rocks <laughs> in the water. Which now I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have let them do that. Yes. Oh my gosh. These tadpoles are trying to survive. They've got a very strict time schedule, kids. <laughs> if we screw it up, they're not gonna make it. Interesting. Yes. 14 days from yeah. egg to grown adult, and so it's just an incredible situation. So these frogs, they literally have to wait and they have to know instinctually, is this enough water for my kids to make it? Mm -hmm. Before we move on to some other fun facts, this is another animal that was here in Arches National Park. I just wanna make fun of the NPS for just a second. I get in trouble for this all the time. I call it silver lining things. I'm a realist. I'm the voice of reason. So that's why he gets in trouble <laughs> for silver lining. Because I'm like, you don't know that. That's not true. That's, you can't prove that. We have those. Now, I'm not going to say arguments. Conversations. We have these discussions. Yes. yes. A lot. So, because he does silver line things or I'm just like, please. Oh, my gosh. I'm a super optimist. And I'm guilty of finding silver linings way too quickly. And so, like, if I was a pirate and I was swashbuckling with Captain Hook or Peter Pan and I lost my leg, as soon as the leg was gone, I would be like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to save so much time in the morning because I only have to put one leg in my pants, you know? <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be great, you know? I'm guilty of that kind of silver lining things, okay? Now, the NPS, they silver lined something that I think is really funny. So, there's amphibians like we just talked about, incredible, miraculous amphibians here in Arches National Park. There's also some cool reptiles. One of those reptiles is the midget faded rattlesnake. Okay. okay. It's a really cool little rattlesnake, but it's a little smaller, I think, because there's not a whole lot of water, and so they don't grow as big. Well, this small subspecies of rattlesnake is extremely venomous. Like, okay. the venom is so poisonous. 
the park service tells you about this little rattlesnake on their site. And if you get bit, you could die. Okay. I'm just telling you here and now you get bit by this thing. You should be worried. Now this is where the NPS silver lines a little bit. Imagine that you were just bit by this rattlesnake and you're laying there on the ground and your friend is like, dude, I got service. Let me hurry and look this up to see if I can, let's figure out what this was and you know what we need to do to treat you. Okay. They get on the NPS site. They find the midget faded rattlesnake and they read this. The venom of the midget faded rattlesnake is extremely venomous. However, full venom injections occur in only one third of all bites. <laughs> <laughs> and so, dude, you're going to be fine. <laughs> full venom injection, one in three chance, man. <laughs> I feel like that's just silver lining that would get me in trouble at home. <laughs> you better not say that to me if I get bit by a rattlesnake. Ash, it's only a one it's in three only chance. one in three. How do we know if it did? We don't. But honestly, if your you chances... you die now or en route to the hospital. <laughs> I say we just finish the hike. I think there's a pretty decent chance that you make it. I just thought that that's was great. That's funny. That was really... I love Also, the I've never seen a rattlesnake in arches. Because they're small, yeah. just like the amphibians. Now I need to know what to look for. 70 to 80% of the life here is too small yeah. for us to notice too much. Really? That's so crazy, though. Well, I'm going on an amphibian search next time I'm there. Yes. Because we have found water, pools of water in arches as we've been hiking. I have some places in my mind where I want to start looking. The courthouse, courthouse wash, wash. That area is one a place that they specifically said you can find these toads. Yeah. So if you go over to the the petroglyph panel over there, you'll cross right over the wash. Right. You can hike up that wash. People do it all the time if you have a permit and stuff. So I'll have to do that. But yep. also we've seen pools of water along the Devil's Garden primitive trail. I have the whale. Arch has a big pool of water yep. in front of it. I've never seen tadpoles in those though. Yeah. It's because so, maybe they already hatched. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Or they already jumped out. I'm just going to go look. I just want to go look. So that's oh. so cool. Oh, so cool. All right. Those are the three miracles that we I wanted to cover. So let's move on to fun fact number four. I'm going to give a disclaimer on this one because I love this fun fact, but I don't know if I'll ever do it again for any other national park. I'll get into that in a minute. Fun fact number four is that Arches National Park is certified as an international dark, dark sky, sky park. park. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to talk about this at any other national park. Well, I'll explain why in just a minute. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, it's so cool. The, the night skies here are absolutely incredible. Yeah. Like I've had some amazing experiences in arches and the surrounding area, just enjoying stars like nowhere else. Can I tell you, people get mad at me all the time for this. They're like... I really feel like you should say more about the night sky at Arches, like on my to-do list and like right. things you can't miss and stuff, which I totally get. I understand. But you also have to recognize you're talking to a mom of toddlers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I haven't seen a star for five years, okay? <laughs> like, yes, I have to stay indoors because these punks. <laughs> we have to put our kids down to bed at... 7 30 it doesn't get dark till 10 right during the summer so no i undo I... the zipper on the tent or if i open the door to the trailer these kids stir and my whole life changes i know it's just not worth waking the kids it's not but anyway so i always think that's funny because i'm like yeah it's, it's a big deal and and we do now we do go look at stars better and stuff because our kids are a little older but there is a very big chunk of time in there where it's like i've not seen a star for a very long time <laughs> It's unfortunate because in general, in a lot of ways, stars are a novelty now. Well, and that's the other thing that surprises me, too, is because we live in an area that's pretty rural. And so seeing stars for us is not that weird. Right. Like we can see the Milky Way from our house on a good night. Right. So, on a really good night. Yeah. For sure. So to a lot of people who live, especially in cities or people who are more from like the east where there just are a lot more cities mm -hmm. and not as much open space and right. stuff like they'll come to arches and just be like, that is literally the 
first time in my whole life that I have ever (laughs) seen the Milky Way. Right. And it's just like, I mean, I can't fathom that because I am used to the dark skies and the blank spaces. Right. Exactly. and And so I do forget. I do take that for granted, I think, because it's just something that I'm like, wow, look at the stars tonight. Whereas somebody else might come and just be like, I've never, ever seen a sky like this. Yeah. But when you're in a situation like in Arches and you see the stars, you're seeing them the same way that humanity saw them for thousands of years. And it's really incredible. Way better than at our house, even. Yeah, and, it is. And you and you can actually realize when you're looking at the stars in Arches, you're like, oh my gosh, I can actually see the pictures that I learned about in school. I can yeah. see Cassiopeia. I can see Orion and I can see Aries and and Scorpio and, and all of these great... They actually look like what the stories say. Right. Because if you're just seeing a constellation and you're seeing three stars and they're saying, that's a bear... And you're like, "Mm, I don't think so. Yeah. But I remember I went to, this wasn't in Moab, but this was in Capitol Reef. And I was camping with a friend. I I didn't have my kids. Right. And we were looking at the stars. And that is when it hit me where I was like, I can see the shapes. I can actually see the full constellation, like the shapes and like what that does look like a bear. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You can see how, like like in Moana, when the great explorers are using the stars to figure out where they are, mm-hmm. you can see, oh my gosh, now I might understand. I have a little bit of a grasp as how people could actually direct themselves and guide themselves around the planet using the stars at night. Because in the city, you see one star. Mm-hmm. And in a dark sky park like Arches... You can be looking at that same star and also see a hundred other stars right right next to it. I mean, it really is crazy. Yeah, it's incredible. We're seeing the way that humanity saw them anciently. Yeah. We're seeing this our connection to ancient man. We're sitting around a campfire, camping in arches, just like the people did thousands of years ago, sharing stories, talking about the great deeds of the people, naming shapes up in the sky and doing all those things, you have that opportunity here in Arches. And so that's why I think it's such a cool thing that Arches is an international dark sky park. So why are we not talking about this? Because I don't understand it. (laughs) Okay. Because it's super cool, but I do not understand. I tried to figure out, I get that there are not that many big cities around and that the light pollution doesn't really reach out here. I get that the ingredients are probably really excellent for this place to have really dark skies and things. But I tried to figure out what the qualifications are for an international (laughs) dark sky park, and I couldn't figure it out. And so I will often, when I'm preparing for this and I'm doing some research, I'll click on things I don't understand to try to figure out what I don't know and then to understand it so that I can explain it. And eventually I'll click on things enough times that I'll find a dumbed down version dumb enough for me to Mm -hmm. understand it. I was reading and clicking on things and I don't know. It never dumbed down. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to figure it out, but I couldn't. Well, there has to be 10 light particles or less. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. So let, let me read to you what I was reading. The core area must also provide an exceptional dark sky resource. Got it. Okay. Relative to the communities and cities that surround it. Check. Where the night sky brightness is routinely equal or darker than 20 magnitudes per square arc second. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Apparently Arches has that. What is 20 magnitudes per square arc second? That's what I was trying to figure out. And my conclusion... This is what this is my answer. My conclusion is that there is a secret club of night sky scientists that control dark sky science, <laughs> and it is their job to protect the secrets of night sky science from outsiders like me. And they so, they do not want to know. They do not <laughs> want you to know what twenty light arc magnitudes are. <laughs> they do not want people like me in the club. I'm, all I want to know is like. Is it kind of like walking to the bathroom at night? 
Is it like walking to your seat in a movie theater? Is it? <laughs> is it? Is it that I can't see Nobody's my? Nobody's dumbing this down enough for you. <laughs> is is it that I can not see my hand in front of my face? What is this? Is there a specific star that I have to be able to see? In order to qualify, I have none of these answers. None of them. All, all I got was that if I wanted to apply for dark sky status, I needed to provide evidence of night sky quality with unihedron sky quality meters. <laughs> <laughs> the more data, the better. So we encourage applicants to include Bortle ratings and star counts. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then you have to buy a special tool that uses measurements that only they understand so that they can judge whether or not you get dark sky status. So, yes, Arches National Park. Fun fact number four. Arches is dark. How dark? Nobody knows. At least 20 magnitudes per square arc second on the Bortle meter scale. <laughs> so... How dark? Pretty dark. It's pretty dark. <laughs> it's dark enough to see the Milky Way. That's all we know. <laughs> Ash is on the verge of ugly crying. I'm so excited. I am. I don't laugh that hard very often, but there's nothing I like more than you playing dumb. Uh, well, it's not playing dumb. You playing. are being dumb. But. I was too dumb. But I like that because I'm too dumb, too. I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> they really should say it has to be dark enough that if your hand is in front of your face, five inches from your eye, you can't see it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> they do need to say that. They do. Well, one of their other like measurements is like star counts. Right. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm. like, what a subjective thing to do. Like, if I if they didn't like me and I was like, dude. There's a million stars here. They'd be like, sorry, you have to be able to view a billion stars. <laughs> so I'm just like, there's no way. But also, I remember learning this because I was a major space nerd, by the way. For a good amount of years, I was going to be an astronaut. And I went to space camp and I did all the things. But I remember, like, if you look directly at the star, it, like, disappears. Right. Like, you've got to count... You got to look at stars through your peripheral to right. see them. And so how are you supposed to count stars? <laughs> exactly. They keep coming and going and you're like trying not to look at them. Oh you're my gosh. Trying to count them while not looking at them yes. directly. All I know is that the first rule of Dark Sky Club is that we don't talk about Dark Sky Club. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm afraid that's all you get, folks. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Hey, if anyone listening is part, is part of, of the Dark Sky Club, Club <laughs> please let us know. We would love to know. <laughs> Maybe you can dumb it down enough for us. Oh my gosh. What is a Bortle meter ranking system? Arc. Yes. Second. Uh, how come we're ranking light in terms of seconds? I don't know. That's like what light is measured by, John. I know. Light years, light minutes, light seconds. Light seconds. They do. This yeah. is crazy. So no more dark skies for any National Park Fun Facts episode. <laughs> Thanks to the Dark Sky Club, there will never again be a fun fact regarding dark skies. <laughs> we'll never do it again. We're but... moving on to fun fact number five. Got to change my attitude a little bit. All right. I'm ready. Okay. Fun fact number five is that a group of about six guys found 95% of all the known arches in Arches National Park. And when was this? Like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. For real? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, okay. When was Arches made a national park? Arches National Park was officially made a national park in 1929. Okay. By President Hoover. I knew it was kind of a middle. It wasn't super early, but it wasn't super recent. Yeah. So that checks out. But then... It took till the 90s. Basically. <laughs> to find all the hey, arches. So, so this is where it's super cool. And this is, so this is the part of the human history. There, there's so many aspects to the human history that we could talk about from Native Americans to early explorers. There's so much that goes on here. The part that I, I thought this was what I wanted to focus on because I think it's really cool. As recently as 1970, the official literature for arches 
said that the park contained nearly 90 arches. See, those are the ones I've seen. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That is half a percent of what we know today. That's crazy. And so for me, that just makes me so excited because it makes me want to get out there. Makes me want to go explore. Yeah. How did these guys get that job? Okay. So the six guys, I'll give you the names. Might have been a little bit more because one of the guy explored and did some of this with his sons and they don't name the sons. But there was Dale Stevens, Ed McCarrick, Chris Moore, Ruben Skolnick, Steve Frederick, and Doug Travers along with his sons. Now, Dale Stevens was a geography professor, and Ed McCarrick was a park ranger. Okay. There aren't many details about the other guys, but I'm guessing they were some just really excited locals. Yeah. The park rangers were probably like, yeah, sure. Yeah. We should find out how many are out there. Yeah. They call these guys the arch hunters. I want to be an arch hunter. (laughs) Yeah. And that's like why I want to focus on this for fun fact number five, because This was recent. The whole place was a national park for more than like 50 years before they discovered the lion's share of all of these arches. These guys came up with the standard for what becomes an arch. They cataloged and photographed everything. And they like went through each different section of the park to try to find out where all these are. I really hope they didn't bust the crust. <laughs> That's all I can think of. <laughs> These guys were well-trained yeah. in non Non-crust busting. I hope so. These guys were the ones that did it. And it just gets me excited because like for me, that just goes to show there's still stuff to explore. Mm-hmm. There's still stuff we can get out. And this was a small national park. What about places like Yellowstone or Yosemite? A lot of these other, or Denali. The ones in Alaska where they're just huge amounts of space. They just found a whole bunch of fossils in Denali. Right. Like dinosaur tracks and stuff that they had no idea there were even dinosaurs up there. Anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that. oh, and the White Sands, they found human footprints that dated back to like 24,000 years ago or something. Right. And that was within the past five years. Right. So, yeah, I mean, they're still in Badlands. They're still finding all sorts of fossils there. Yeah. Like people who are just hiking find them. For people that are thinking to themselves, everything's been explored. Wrong. There is so much to do still. Like we haven't even explored our oceans properly yet. And all of these national parks, there's still stuff to find. And that's exciting for me. Like, it makes me want to get my kids, put on a backpack, get our hiking shoes laced up, and get on the trail. Mm -hmm. Because there is still stuff that people haven't seen yet. Truthfully, even if, I mean, we said they've already cataloged over 2,000 arches, but I myself have not seen even anywhere close to that. Right. And so even though somebody else has already found it and said, hey, this exists, like, The idea of me going and hunting for arches that I've never seen is really fun. It's so exciting. Yeah, it sounds so enticing. Plus, they found all of these 20 to 30 years ago, but erosional forces are still going on. Yeah. Arches are still being made. Maybe they found a two-foot arch, and now it's three feet, so it counts. Heck yeah. And it's not been cataloged yet. That is waiting For me. For you. Yeah. And you and whoever's listening, Arch's adventure is waiting. This landscape is so exciting. It's so inviting. It's a place of miracles. So many cool things have happened. Life finds a way. The sandstone turned into Swiss cheese. The night skies are there beaming down at you, waiting for you to see them like you've never seen them before. Adventure is here at Arch's National Park. So on that note, your task for this episode is to head over to the Dirt in My Shoes Facebook or Instagram page, and we're going to have a question there. We want to know which national park, if you could choose any national park, which one would you want to further explore? Right. So similar to Arches, There were these six guys who decided they wanted to go and find all the arches in Arches National Park. Right. Which park would you choose? And I would even add, what would you hope to find? 
what adventure are you looking for in your park of choice? What are you hoping to find? If you could explore and discover something, what would it be? That's so exciting. (laughs) So head over to Dirt My Shoes Facebook or Instagram. Let us know. We would love to read through those. And we can all dream a little bit about how cool it would be to discover something new in a national park, which, like we said, is totally possible. Oh, yeah. Totally possible. So thank you for listening to our episode today. If you need any help planning your trip to Arches, we have an Arches itinerary that will walk you through your hour by hour schedule so you can pick that up. We also have lots of trip planning articles and we have YouTube videos. We have (laughs) other podcast episodes. We have you set if you are planning your trip to Arches. So head over to Dirt in My Shoes for all of that. We'll make sure that you have just a fantastic trip to Arches National Park. Absolutely. And we would really love it if you could give the Exploring the National Parks podcast a five-star review. That helps us to get the word out, to spread the adventure out there. And And to make sure more people don't bust the crust. (laughs) That is very important to me. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So please do. Please give us a five-star review. We just love hearing from you. And please go get some dirt in your shoes. (laughs) 